Concord Matters is made possible in part by a generous gift from Set Apart to Serve, the church work recruitment initiative of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Our churches are so blessed to have pastors from all walks of life. Former military veterans, engineers, entrepreneurs, our Lord calls men to be pastors from all backgrounds with a passion for the word and a heart for the gospel. If you or a friend have been praying and thinking about a second career as a pastor in Christ Church, the Set Apart to Serve team wants to help you put your experience and skills to use in pastoral ministry. Visit weareyourseminaries.org. That's weareyourseminaries.org. and welcome to Concord Matters. We have a simple goal here on Concord Matters, to seek unity in our confession of the Christian faith through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says it well from Romans chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We seek this harmony by the Holy Spirit through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the Book of Concord. Because the Book of Concord is not another Bible, but what it is is we believe, teach, and confess that these writings are in accord with God's Holy Word, which is our only source and hope. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today, we continue our study of the Augsburg Confession in Article 18, which is titled Free Will. Something that you hear quite often in our culture is, well, at least I have free will. I'm able to do this. Or we speak a lot in words of freedom, freedom as American people, freedom of choice. And the question is, how does that connect with faith? How does it connect with God's word? And I'll guarantee you this. Um, every time you speak of free will and you look back to God's word, you're like, oh, you know what? That's probably a good point. I probably need to be a little more clear in what I say and what I believe. And that's our goal today on Concord Matters. So open up your Bible, open up your book of Concord, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Augsburg Confession, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer, teacher of the Wittenberg Academy. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, welcome back. Oh, it to is Concord great Matters. to be here to talk about the Book of Concord. Well, Pastor, as we look at our article today, I remind our listeners that we are in the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions by Concordia Publishing House. And we are on page 40 of, our, of, of the Augsburg Confession, Article 18 free will. You know what? I'm going to start this way, actually, Pastor, if, if I can uh, put you on the spot, is if you were to talk to the normal American or the normal person and you say, uh, what is free will? Any guesses on what you would perceive that people Well, I would think say? we would quickly go into the realm of the political freedom, uh, the idea here in America that we, we can vote, we can choose uh, what we want, we can elect the officials that we want, uh, we can try to change the policies that we want. We have this freedom, this uh, uh, right to to be able to do things here in America with this liberty, this re religious liberty that we have. Of course, as Christians, we would talk about that. 
But I, I think in the secular realm, it'd be more this, this it's a free country. Uh, and maybe you're not the boss of me. It's a free country kind of a concept. But it's it's really within this this earthly realm. I, I think that that's how the average American would think about freedom and liberty that we have in this country. And that's a good point, because there are times that we need to look at this and, and really ask the question of how we function in the world, how we see things in the world. Let's just say politically, like you just mentioned. Sometimes it just kind of it just kind of uh, flows into our theology, and 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 what's the problem with that? Maybe, maybe they're the same. I don't know. What's the problem of of those things kind of flowing together as as Christians living in whatever country we live? Well, in? I think the the issue is if they flow together from the wrong direction. If it's flowing from society into the mm. church, that's where we're going to have a problem. It should flow from the church out to society. And really, that, that's the, the original understanding uh, with this, uh, this whole American experiment that we have, is there was a concept of, of Christian virtues, of Christian ideas of how we live here in life, or Christian morals. I mean, even the deist and the founding fathers who were deists would still, still have this rationalistic, reasonable idea that these, these Christian morals are good for society. And people ought to choose to do good because it's good for society. Uh, but that would flow from the church into society. But we don't want the society to flow into church so that, for instance, uh, we end up with this idea of uh, the, the, the right to choose if you're going to have an abortion, that I am so-called pro-choice, which, of course, means pro-abortion. That's flowing from society, and it's flowing the wrong way and trying to change the understanding of the sanctity of life that the church, of course, is to revere and to honor and to rejoice in the gift of life from God. So if it's coming from the state and the culture, that's flowing the wrong direction. We should be receiving these gifts from God in his revealed word, the revealed knowledge of salvation, and that should flow forth toward how we as Christians view our activity in society, how we can be a blessing and a benefit to others with the freedom that we do have, that with freedom we have here on the horizontal plane. Well, let's dig into it. We are on page 40, article 18 on free will, the Augsburg Confession, and we'll begin with the note. By the time of the Reformation, the Roman Church had fully developed a false and potentially damning doctrine, one that stated that a person is able, to some degree, to strive for and receive God's mercy. Article 18 asserts Scripture's teaching that people, apart from God's grace, are wholly incapable of perceiving spiritual things. The longest quote from a church father in the Augsburg Confession occurs here. It demonstrates Lutheranism's continuity with the church Catholic. In contrast, a Roman error on this doctrine. Augustine echoes the Bible's teaching that while we humans can perform acts of civil righteousness, which may be called, quote, good, spiritually, we are evil and enemies of God. However, in Christ, our loving God breaks down the wall of hostility separating us from him. By his spirit, through his word, he gives us Christ's perfect righteousness as a gift. In external worldly matters, we do have the freedom to make decisions according to human reason, but this does not mean, apart from God's grace, that we have similar powers and matters of eternal life. So, Pastor, uh, as, as we look at all of it, how, how would you start off? You were having a, a Bible study on free will. 
how would you start off as we look at all the moving factors before we actually get well, to the Well, again, when we look at the scripture, we have this revealed knowledge of salvation. You only receive that through the Bible itself. God's revealed will. Uh, God gives to us what he desires for humanity. Uh, of course, his will to love him, to love others. His will that we would believe in the person and work of Christ. I mean, that's all in the scripture itself. Uh, so we, we want to have that understanding that without that knowledge, that the revealed knowledge of Jesus, that God is the creator and the redeemer, all you're left with is just this, this natural knowledge, just what you can ascertain from creation itself. And so when you just look on the, the horizontal plane, that's where we interact with each other in creation itself, you can just tell how things work together, and it's good when things work in an orderly manner, and it's bad when they are disorderly and filled with chaos. And so you can see the beauty of creation when you're just looking at natural knowledge, but at the same time, when you, you take a, a longer look at this and you meditate upon it, you will see the ugliness of creation because of the fall into sin. So in that realm of just this horizontal plane with nature, you can only obtain the idea that there is a creator who designed things, but you really don't know if the creator is good. And so it's that vertical. So the horizontal plane is us in humanity and creation, but vertically, it's that spiritual connection that we have with the creator himself that we are his creatures, and that we all can only learn this from the scripture. So we don't have the free will to have that knowledge, that love for God, or that faith in God. We don't have the ability to choose God as our creator or choose God as our redeemer. We don't have the ability to choose to believe. So when we're talking about this understanding of a free will, it's not in that vertical realm between us and God, but rather it is on this horizontal realm between us and creation and fellow creatures. So that free will is here and how we interact in this life. And so let's dig into this, because the question comes where we have to start. Like you said, the question is, do we actually have free will? So I want to start with this first sentence that's in the Article 18. Our churches teach that a person's will has some freedom to choose civil righteousness and to do things subject to reason. Now, Pastor, one of, one of my professors at seminary said, you have a choice, and the choice is that you are able to choose what color shirt you're wearing this morning. So, Pastor, what are the things that we have free will in as, as, as we understand? Well, it's in this us? earthly plane, the horizontal plane, how we interact with fellow creatures, fellow human beings, uh, our neighbor, uh, how we interact in this life that we're given. Like you said, I mean, the, the color of shirt, you, you can choose to eat pizza or a hamburger. You could even choose not to eat at all. I mean, you have those choices. So I, I think we run into problems where we try to mix the horizontal with the vertical, where we try to mix the physical with the spiritual and try to confuse this so that we have this spiritual freedom before God to choose to believe in God, to choose to have faith, to choose God as our Savior. Uh, you see this in American evangelicalism, where the whole emphasis is, have you, have you made Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? Well, you can't make Jesus do anything. I mean, he's God. He is Savior, regardless of whether or not you, you believe it to be true, or if you, you decide that he's going to be your personal Savior. That's, that's who he is. He is a Savior. He comes to save and bring salvation. 
So it's in this realm of this freedom of choice. But we, we even in the church, we get kind of mixed up in these things. So you have the idea of, a, well, do I, should I wear a, a red shirt or a blue shirt? And then you're going to pray to God to know what is his will. Is it better to wear a red shirt or a blue shirt? Or you're, you're going to have lunch and you, you want to know, is it God's will to eat refried beans or pinto beans or black beans or what it may be. And then you're trying to discern what God has led you to choose because of this, this idea of how you are to interact in life. But that free will is how we do. A person's will has some freedom to choose a civil righteousness. So we're in this realm of this civilization, in the realm of how we interact with each other. And so that's why we call it a a civil righteousness. It's that freedom to choose how you're going to interact today, but there's some levels to this. I mean, you can you could choose today to refrain from murdering your neighbor. I mean, you could choose today to refrain from committing adultery. I mean, there's these things you can, this, this level of freedom that you have here, freedom to choose civil righteousness to some degree, to some extent, uh, that, that it has to do with your reason, with your logic, which is a gift from God. I mean, so you know, reasonably, even the unbeliever knows it's not a good idea to murder your neighbor. The unbeliever just knows reasonably it's not a good idea to commit adultery and to try to have an affair with somebody else's uh, spouse. I mean, so that's a reasonable type thing. So in that realm of, of freedom here, when we're talking about a civil righteousness or a, a righteousness of reason, it's kind of in this, this horizontal earthly plane. And so let's just get to this point, what would be the issue? Because you and I have met, and, and you, our listeners, have met people that I accepted Jesus into my heart on such and such day years ago. I made Jesus my Lord and Savior. You know, we, we hear it all the time from very genuine Christian people. So what's what's the problem? I mean, why, why would we make a big deal out of this as Lutherans? Because it's one of the biggest things that separates us from other denominations is you'll say, well, actually you didn't choose God and people kind of, that can get very personal pretty quickly. So what's the danger um, with having that understanding? Well, you you end up back to the place where we were at at the time of the Reformation, where you're ending up in a, a works righteousness type of a system where faith is just now seen as your work. Faith is something where you have mustered up enough strength to decide to believe in Jesus. And so that's where it's now, it's, it's you making Jesus your Savior, you choosing Jesus to be your Savior, instead of Jesus doing the work and being your Savior and dying on the cross for you. And so it's that mixing of this, this understanding of what it means to have this free will. In the scripture, it's clear that it's the gift of faith from God. God gives this gift through his word when God gives the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who is opening eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand and to believe. So it's a, a gift from God. And, and I, I think that it, it helps us to make these distinctions. The, the art of theology is always making distinctions between an active righteousness versus a passive righteousness. An active righteousness is in this, this horizontal plane of how you actively do right things. It's an achieved righteousness. And even an unbeliever can have, to some extent, an achieved righteousness. An unbeliever can do things that are in line with the second half of the Ten Commandments. But the passive righteousness is a received righteousness from God. It's a gift. It's the righteousness of Jesus that's imputed to you, reckoned to you, accounted to you. It becomes your own by faith. 
And then God's the one who gives you the gift of faith itself, which receives this gift, this promise from God. So an act of righteousness is something that you do. A received righteousness that we have is passive. It's something that Christ has done for us. So you're mixing up the thing here where you're, you're trying to actively be involved in meriting or earning your righteousness. And that was the problem at the Reformation, where they were having these different understandings of uh, merit, how you merit or earn favor with God, how you merit or earn the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And the philosophers in the Roman Catholic theological thinking came up with this idea of these categories of a merit of congruity or a merit of, of condignity. And the idea is if it's a merit of congruity, that's what an unbeliever does. Uh, it's the, the unbeliever has no faith. Just the, the average person who has no faith in God, born in sin, conceived in sin, naturally has a animosity towards God, but yet could still do something that's good for benefit of, of the self. You know, that you say, hey, this is a good idea. I ought to do this. You can reason it through. And so in that Roman Catholic idea was the unbeliever would have a merit of congruity, and then that merit of congruity would then merit or earn the gift of the Holy Spirit that gives you this grace. And so the other thing is that you have a merit of condignity, where that's for a believer, that the grace of God enables you to do things for others and for yourself. And it's all about this disposition of love. But what Melanchthon uh, addresses in the Apology when he's talking about this is that whole philosophical, uh, logical kind of reasoning through this rationalization is always going to leave the conscience in a state of despair because you never know exactly where that disposition of love is. When you did a good work and you chose to do it, was it because of the love of God that you did this? Because then it's good. Then it's, then it's a merit of condignity. But if you did it out of fear of God's wrath or punishment, well, then you're acting just like an unbeliever. And so it's a merit of congruity. And so you're constantly trying to figure out which one is it. And as Melanchthon says, you never really fully know. But the one who's smug and thinks that he's got everything right is always just going to assume that he's doing it out of love for God. Uh, but if we're really honest with ourselves, everything that we do in this life from a freedom of choice is still going to be tainted with sin. So we have these theological kind of uh, uh, conundrums in this life because of original sin. By nature, we are enemies of God and we cannot please God. It's impossible to please God without faith. And whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Well, let's dig in because it is something very true. And I'll say this, that often when someone challenged me to say, how sincere are you really, Brady? That's when this really came to a head where you're like thinking, well, yeah, I do that because of my love for the Lord. And then you, then you, people ask you a question, was that really what it was? Or was there something else on your heart? And you're like, oh my, <laughs> I might not have been as genuine as I thought, which is why I encourage you, our listeners to take a look at this confession because it is so important because it takes out us completely out of the equation when we have a tendency to want to sneak us into it. So we're looking at free will. We're digging into the confession, Article 18, free will with the actual confession. And it conf the Concordians confessed, our churches teach 
that a person's will has some freedom to choose civil righteousness and to do things subject to reason. It has no power without the Holy Spirit to work the righteousness of God, that is, spiritual righteousness. For the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. This righteousness is worked in the heart when the Holy Spirit is received through the Word. Before we get to a few of the words, I wanted to read as a reference there is some Galatians 3, verses 2 through 6. And Paul writes this, Let me ask you this only. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law? or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness? Pastor, we do not have, we have free will in the civil things, as you mentioned, the horizontal, but it comes a vertical, where well, is our you free know, will? Again, with this idea of American evangelicalism and trying to make a decision for Jesus, I mean, I remember when I was at the university, and this concept was, well, you have to ask Jesus into your heart. And of course, we don't find that in the scripture anyway. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, this is how you come to salvation. It's not what the apostles say in the book of Acts. They don't say, uh, what must we do to be saved? We'll ask Jesus in your heart. That's not from scripture. That's a very American, uh, very recent uh, addition to uh, Christianity. But that whole concept of you've got to ask Jesus in your heart. And the idea behind that is you have to really, really, really mean it. So we're not talking about like an 80% you got to mean it, uh, or even a, a 98%, you have to 100% really, really mean that you want Jesus to save you. <laughs> and so the problem is that if, if you're an unbeliever, or even if you're a believer for that matter, how would you know if you 100% uh, made that uh, that choice or that decision there? And, and so that that's the, the problem here is you, you cause a, a doubt in the conscience to know for certain and sure, did you do enough? Because the law itself can never justify you before God. And that law is always going to tell you that you have to do things perfectly. It's, it's what you do, what's required of you, what you're supposed to refrain from doing. It's always measuring you. And you can never be certain or sure. So that, that's always going to be a fundamental issue here. Did you really, really, really mean it? And so you would have typically uh, in the Baptist circles, you have kids who would ask over and over and over again. You know, you try it uh, later on in life. You say, well, I guess I backslid, so I must not really meant it. So I'll try it again. And so you, you constantly, uh, I'll keep asking again. And then finally, you just come to the point where I guess I must have meant it because now I've been in church for quite some time. So it, it's this, this confusion of that free will. The free will is this horizontal, not this vertical. I mean, so when in Galatians, when Paul is talking about this hearing, this faith, of hearing, that uh, you hear the Word of God, the promise of God, because it's faith that comes through hearing the Word of Christ. That's how we receive faith. That's how the Holy Spirit is working through that Word, creating in us this faith and fortifying this faith in us, always reassuring us of the person and work of Christ. And so it, it's not by the works of the law that we become righteous. It's not a righteousness of the law. It's the righteousness of God. It's what God has done for us. And that confusion is always going to be there. At what point do we have to kick in and do our part? And this is going to be the whole issue here with Pelagianism, 
uh, Pelagius teaching this idea that the whole reason of the law is that you know what you ought to do, and if you just associate with fellow Christians who also know what they ought to do, and you can encourage each other, you can just go ahead and do it. So that the primary purpose of Jesus is really an example, uh, not Jesus as a gift, but primarily just an example. And then, of course, you know, St. Augustine comes back with the Pelagians, and well, why why does Jesus need to die then? I mean, what's the, the purpose of the atonement, the shedding of the blood, taking upon our sins upon the cross, and bringing reconciliation with the Creator? And so a lot of this argumentation about free will is in that debate that Augustine is going to have with the, the Pelagians on one side who are overemphasizing your free will. You can do anything, just put your heart to it, and you can have this disposition of love, which then makes you right with God. Or on the other side, Augustine is arguing with the Manichaeans, who are basically saying you have no free will. So that means in this life, everything happens because it was already foreordained by God. It must take place because God willed it to happen and you had no choice. So there was no freedom of the will. And so those are the debates that, that Augustine has on the left and the right, either too much free will, like Pelagius, or no free will at all, like the Manichaeans. So you're, you're trying to figure out where are we? And, and of course, the argumentation against Rome is Rome is taking that semi-Pelagian role where it's sort of like Pelagius. You do so much, you do your part, and Jesus does the rest. And that's where you had Luther and Erasmus having this whole argumentation with uh, Luther's great writing, The Bondage of the Will, which was in response to uh, Erasmus's freedom of the will, because Erasmus wants to make the freedom of the will vertical, that you have the ability to fulfill the law yourself, to do all that is required, even without faith. So it's just this disposition of love. If you have that, that merit of condignity, then you're good with God and you can do these things. And Erasmus would argue, why else would God tell you to do it if you couldn't do it? Luther would argue that that's the whole point. It's this theological use of the law showing you that you cannot do it because of original sin. By nature, you are an animosity with God. You're an enemy of God. You hate God. You don't want to hear God's word. You're resisting God. You do not have the true fear love and faith in God that's required. So yes, you can do these external outward acts that are good, but the requirement of the law, the first half of the Ten Commandments is always spiritual, that you have to do it internally with faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. We need to take our break. On the other side of our break, the question really is, was this something new that the Reformers brought up, or was it always something that was believed in the Church? But we are studying Free Will in the Augsburg Confession, Article 18, with Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer, and we'll be right back. Many church workers always knew they wanted to serve in Christ's church, but for some, the passion to become a pastor, teacher, deaconess, or other full-time church worker came later in life. Leaving a career to pursue this life of service is not without challenges, yet these are sacred and joyous vocations unlike any other. Set apart to serve, the Church Work Recruitment Initiative of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate is here to help. Visit kfuo.org SAS to learn how you can put your experience and skills to work through full-time service in Christ's church. That's kfuo.org SAS. Welcome back. 
we are studying and confessing the truth of free will, according to Holy Scripture, from the Augsburg, from Augsburg Confession, Article 18, with the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer. Pastor, we're going to go right into the next section, because I think many times people will read this and say, nah, you guys just made something up in the 16th century. You were mad about one thing, you went to the extreme on the others. The question is, is this something that Luther made up, Melanchthon made up, the Reformers did, the Concordians? We read from Augustine, who says in the Hypognosticon, book, book number three, he says this. This is on page 41 of the Augsburg Confession, uh, the reader's edition of the Book of Concord. He says, we grant that all people have a free will. It is free as far as it has judgment of reason. It does not mean that it is able without God either to begin or at least to complete anything that has to do with God. It is free only in works of this life, whether good or evil. Good, I call those works that spring from the good in nature, such as willing to labor in the field, to eat and drink, to have a friend, to clothe oneself, to build a house, to marry a wife, to raise cattle, to learn various useful arts, or whatsoever good applies to this life. For all these things depend on the providence of God. They are from him and exist through him. Works that are willing to worship an idol, to commit murder, and so forth, I call evil. So Augustine here, Pastor, is making a distinction of what is free and what isn't. And the free the free will stuff does, sometimes doesn't look so well, good. Again, How the, is he the making kind that of framework that I'm using is this, this horizontal plane, how we interact with fellow creatures, with creation itself, with other human beings. And so when you look at this kind of interaction in this freedom that we have, the idea is that you can have a friend. I mean, so this is Augustine saying you can choose your friend. You know, you can choose to be friends with this person. Uh, you can eat and drink. You can labor in the field. I mean, you can labor in the field for your own benefit, for your family's benefit, and of course, the employer himself or whoever it may be, unless you have your own farm, right? And so you can choose these things to build a house, to not have a house, to live in an apartment, to have a car, to not have a car. I mean, these are these kind of things, to marry a wife. But I think that a lot of times this gets confused in American Christianity because we're trying to over-spiritualize things. And so even when you get to the, the, the point of marrying a wife, I mean, there are those who choose to marry a spouse, right? Which is a good thing. We know this is a good thing because God himself has instituted marriage. But then you get into this realm of, well, which wife or, you know, which husband, uh, which is the right one? And you're trying to find some kind of an extra biblical sign or vision or something from God that's going to indicate to you that this is the one that you must choose because this is the one that is my will. Well, with the scripture, again, we have God's revealed will. We know what is good and we receive this wisdom from God on how we are to act wisely in this world. So you can wisely choose a spouse. So you have that free will of which spouse to choose. And that spouse, of course, is in line with you look at the scripture and it says it would be wise as a believer to marry a believer. I mean, that's this, this wisdom that you have here. Uh, it'd be wise that if you, when you marry a spouse, that you attend the same church together it, before marriage. And then after marriage, you would continue to uh, grow together spiritually. So it, it's this whole realm of these, in this life, all that happens here. Uh, you, you have the idea of choosing a, a, uh, an education to go to higher education or vocational school or career paths. I mean, you're choosing 
because you have this free will in the horizontal plane. But whatever you choose to do, of course, you understand spiritually is in accordance ultimately with God's will to glory of God. Uh, for the love of God and love of neighbor in whatever vocation and calling and place where God has placed you to uh, do his will. Well, let's put it in this sense. If you have a young man that comes to you and says, Pastor, I'm considering to be a pastor or I'm considering to be a truck driver. What would be your, especially when you're speaking about free will, how would you how would you speak to that young man about those distinctions? Because easily you could say, well, it's better for me to be a pastor because that's more, quote, holy, or, or that's exactly what God wants me to do because that is, you know, a serving in that kingdom. What would be your uh, well, of course, you of would know the individual man? himself as he's looking through these things. But you would want to make it very clear that it's not like being a pastor makes you holy and being a truck driver makes you unholy. I mean, so that's a, <laughs> you can have an unholy pastor and you could definitely have a holy truck driver. Right. So <laughs> the issue is not the vocation itself, but it's faith. Right. I mean, if you have a pastor who doesn't have faith, is he really good? Um uh, is he teaching God's word? Is that really good? No. So you, you of course, want to look at the, the individual himself. Does he have that, that aptitude and that ability, that desire to learn and to grow in the knowledge of salvation, and that desire and ability to be teachable so that he can teach others with God's word? I mean, if he's leaning towards that, you say, why don't you look into this? I mean, they, they have these things like at uh, Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne has a Christ Academy where a high school student can go there for about two weeks and just get a, get a taste of seminary life and kind of look and say, is this something for me? Is this direction I would like to pursue? Um, it might be that you say no, and then you could go and look into ways of uh, what, what about being a truck driver? Is it something that's more the kind of the life that I would pursue for the glory of God, to be a benefit to others, to serve my neighbor, and know that God has placed me there to be a blessing to others. So you have that freedom of choice of what career path to take. And that we, we want to be very clear on that. It's not like one is God's will and the other is not God's will. Uh, so you say, it's not God's will to be a truck driver. You know, only God's will can be being a pastor or something like that. We want to be very careful that we don't try to set up some kind of a dichotomy that Scripture itself is not trying to uh, put in place for us because it is not revealed in that way in the Bible. So as Augustine is writing these words, he, as you said, is 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 a fight, not fighting, but he's uh, he's confessing this truth based upon what was called the Pelagian. So I want to read our last section where it speaks about the Pelagians. We speak a lot about this in, in church world. You have Pelagianism or you have semi-Pelagianism. Sometimes we throw it out without really knowing what it is. So I want to talk about that and contrast it. How does this happen today? Is this something that was just around in the fourth century or is this still something that is relevant for us today? And number eight. Our churches condemn the Pelagians and others who teach that without the Holy Spirit by natural power alone, we are able to love God above all things and to do God's commandments according to the letter. Although nature is able in a certain way to do outward work, for is able to keep the hands from theft and murder, yet it cannot produce the inward motions, such as the fear of God, trust in God, chastity, patience, and so on. Pastor, what did the Pelagians well, believe? Well, again, Pelagius being a British so monk, um, two things there, British and a monk. But, but Pelagius, of course, having this understanding that the Ten Commandments are given to us because this is God's will. 
And if God gives it to us, we ought to be able to do it even without the Holy Spirit, even without faith, that you could just give this will to the unbeliever and say, do it. And then the unbeliever would say, okay, I'll do it. Especially if you were in a community. Remember, he's a monk. I mean, in a monastery, uh, an order that you're putting together a, a, a community where everybody is like-minded trying to do what is good, kind of an idea. So this is the concept of the Ten Commandments are given to us so that we would do them. And it's, it's overemphasizing that free will, that we have the free will to stop sinning, that you would just have the free will to start doing only good works. And you kind of get to this point of, a, of a, a level of perfectionism, if you will, where you just, you don't sin anymore. But if you don't sin anymore, you don't need Jesus anymore. Or even this whole idea that you could just do it on your own power, your own ability, well, then you really don't need Jesus. Jesus is just giving an example of this is what it ought to look like to be a child of God. And so all you're trying to do is just emulate Jesus. Well, then where's the, the spiritual realm here? Where is the role of the Holy Spirit who is giving you this ability to do these things? Uh, and so understand this, this natural power. This is the problem with original sin. And so Augustine, when he is, is going against Pelagius, Augustine is really pounding out this, this understanding, this defining how we would clearly teach the situation we're in, that we are in a fallen state. By nature, the natural man does not receive the things of God. And so by nature, because of original sin, this root sin, this inherited sin from Adam and Eve, we are unable to truly fear, trust, and love in God. We just, we cannot do it. And so here, this emphasis, of course, is on this, this idea of the commandments being done according to the letter, okay, just in an outward activity. Now, remember, when we look at the Ten Commandments and you look at that third commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, it's not like the refraining from work, that outward external activity is what makes you holy or makes that day holy. I mean, even an unbeliever can stop working on the Sabbath day. You know, the unbeliever could just refrain from working, not go into work, not do any manual labor at all. But the unbeliever is not going to make that day holy. The unbeliever is not going to be holy just because of the external outward work. It's the change of the heart itself that's the conversion and the work of the Holy Spirit, who is changing the heart, giving the heart faith, giving a conversion, converting the heart toward God, facing the individual back toward God, reconciling and bringing this newness of life. The Holy Spirit is working in giving us these new thoughts, these new ideas, these this new way of speaking, the new way of acting, the new way of walking. We are, we are beginning to walk in newness of life. So with the gift of baptism, so Augustine's talking about original sin, that condition that we have, with that gift of baptism, we are then adopted as children of God by grace. We are brought into the family, and the Holy Spirit is beginning this work the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the continual gifts of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, that gospel message that's given to us, the promises of the person and work of Christ, that we are continuing to live out that baptism. So here Augustine is now emphasizing baptism is the work of God. 
that in this baptismal life, we are united in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we are daily learning to die to sin and daily learning to rise to newness of life, to walk to the glory of God. But it's always this, this state where we are working toward putting sin to death. And so that sin is this spiritual condition we have. Pelagius is more looking at it as just more of the physical realm. In this realm, you just choose not to sin. And so it's not a, a spiritual condition. It's more for Pelagius, I, I think, more like a just a physical condition. Just you, You're just encouraged to love. And so if you just love, you have that disposition of love, then you have good works. I mean, it's that whole uh, Greek philosophical idea that if you want to be a good person, you have to practice doing good works because good works make a good person. Uh, but the, the whole understanding of the spiritual condition we're in is by nature, we are not good people. By nature, we are evil. We are by nature, sons of the devil, sons of disobedience. And so we have that animosity with God. It's the Holy Spirit that's at work in us through the power of the gospel to change our hearts and to, to begin this newness of life. So it's, it's, it's the issue of the spiritual condition, not just the outward external thing uh, that Pelagius is looking toward. Uh, I mean, so this, this idea that a person can keep his hands from theft or murder. Well, yeah, I mean, you, 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 can, you can put somebody in a uh, incarceration in a, a penitentiary and you're trying to, quote unquote, reform them to bring them back out in society and say, we're going to teach you a lesson. Uh, stop murdering people. And so you, you kind of change the person's like, OK, reason. Yeah, it's not a good idea to murder people. Well, that's an outward external thing that a person has chosen by reason to do. Uh, you, you come to your senses and say, that's not a good idea. But the, the whole issue of the Christian message is that by nature, we have a spiritual problem. And that spiritual problem can only be solved by the Holy Spirit, who is given to us, poured out upon us, because Jesus has ascended as our high priest and mediator. Now, we speak about Pelagian, and we speak about semi-Pelagians, and we speak about it in the past tense. You know, this is clearly something they had to address in the 16th century, we talk about Roman Catholicism, having that, but you meet a lot of very faithful Catholic people. So how is this manifested today? If we were to write a confession today, what would be an example that you would have about this? this well, the issue, issue is the always a, a difference century. between the doctrine of justification through faith alone. I mean, this is the scriptural doctrine from the Old Testament, New Testament. It's, it's not different. It's always been this way. We are justified by faith. And it's your faith is that promise of the personal work of Christ, what he has done for us. And so you slip into a works righteousness or a self-righteousness when you steal that glory from Jesus and you try to give that glory to yourself. You, you give that on to yourself. And you say what I've done, uh, what I've done to to save me. I mean, so and this is kind of such a slippery slope when you get into this uh, in the the great, the so-called second great awakening in the 1800s with uh, Charles Finney, where he has to have new measures. I mean, so Charles Finney was formerly an attorney. And so he was used to persuading the jury, you know, through an argumentation of a speech, he's giving this presentation and you could persuade people to agree with him. I mean, that's the idea of a, a free will in this horizontal plane. Somebody gives you an argument and says, these are the reasons why my argument are valid. And then you can agree or disagree if you're using good logic or bad logic. I mean, you're using your, your mind to think these things through. 
Well, when Charles Finney in the 1800s is doing this, he, he says, we have to have new measures because in the book of Acts, Charles Finney says he, he became a pastor. So he starts doing these camp meetings. He said they had baptism back then. <laughs> and so somehow we didn't need baptism anymore in the 1800s. So instead we needed new measures. And that's where you come up with the so-called anxious bench. So you'd have these camp meetings and you would set the, the, your unbelieving friend, your unrepentant sinner, your non-Christian, you invite them to the camp meeting, you sit them in the front row, and they would hear preachers for hours on end until they finally got up and made a decision for Jesus. So <laughs> you could persuade them to finally get up off that anxious bench and become a believer, and you're free. You're free to go around the camp and uh, jump up and down and hoot and holler like, uh, like a hound or something. And then they, they claim that's the Holy Spirit who's got a hold of them, right? But that's that, that whole idea in the 1800s. I mean, you, you get later on with uh, Billy Sunday, who's the baseball player who's converted to Christianity, and he goes around with these kind of camp meetings too, these tent revivals, and he has the sawdust trail. You know, So you get the tent of revival, you set up the chairs, you put the sawdust trail down the middle aisle. And so the idea is Billy Sunday is going to convince you, he's going to persuade you to believe in Jesus by your logic and your reason. I mean, this is why in the catechism we say that I cannot come to Jesus. I, I cannot believe in Jesus by my own logic, reason, or strength. I mean, you can't. It's but by the Holy Spirit. So when you're just using this idea of a persuasion, you're persuading somebody to be a believer, you would come down this sawdust trail and then you would shake Billy Sunday's hand. And then that assurance of shaking Billy Sunday's hand was the assurance that now you are saved. I mean, again, with the anxious bench, you're running around the campfire, the Holy Spirit's got a hold of you, you're hyperactive, and that's going to be your assurance that you have been saved. I mean, this is this whole idea, and at some point, this whole idea of the, the so-called sinner's prayer that you get in these uh, Billy Graham crusades, that if you repeat after Billy Graham, as soon as you repeat it, then he says, if you just said this prayer, and if you just meant it with your whole heart, now you're saved. So the assurance of your salvation is based upon something you did, a prayer or walking down the sawdust trail and shaking Billy Sunday's hand, or getting up off the anxious bench and hooting and hollering and running around like a hound. And so that's where your assurance is. Now that's problematic because now your assurance is on what you did, on an event that was your free will and your choice to do. You made a choice to do that. The scripture is always going to assure us that our, our assurance is not in what we do, but it's in what Christ has done. And so we have that assurance in the promises that God gives us in the proclamation of the gospel, the message of the forgiveness of sins, Christ crucified for us, that Jesus took our sins upon himself. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so our assurance is in the personal work of Jesus. And you can be assured when you hear that gospel message that you say, you know, pastor, I, I sinned. And as a pastor can assure you, yes, even that sin Jesus died for. You can be assured in your baptism that when you were baptized, you were united into the death of Jesus. You've been crucified with Christ and you've been raised with Christ. And now he stands as your high priest. And then when you take the Lord's Supper, you can be assured that this is the very body of Jesus that was given for you on the cross. And it's given for you right now into your mouth. And the blood that was shed for you, that was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins is now poured into your mouth. So you have that assurance in that work of God in the sacraments uh, where God himself is assuring you that he's the one who saves you, not your activity. So that, that's always this, this temptation here in American Christianity that the emphasis is going to be on you. 
And if the emphasis is on you, your conscience is always going to be uncertain and unsure. Uh, I mean, did I do it enough? Was it enough? Was it 100%? Did I really, truly mean it? Now, the question that comes to mind for me, and I've had people ask me these questions, is first of all, okay, they'll say, I get it. I can choose God. God chose me. I'm able to make choices each day, like I mentioned before, what shirt I'm going to wear, where I go to eat, you know, when I go to bed, these kind of things. But are there times, and how does this fit within our understanding of what Scripture tells us, where I have made, in faith, I've done a good and holy thing. For example, like you mentioned, I got married to my bride. This was a good and holy thing. So how do we look upon that as, I may quote a good choice in God's God's action in this, or I did not go and steal, or I you know served my neighbor, or in the example they use at the end, gift of the Holy Spirit, I was patient in that situation. I was chaste until I was married. How would you explain that in a Bible study to say, okay, um, this is you know clearly uh, how is God and me? Yeah, I, I how think does that, that again when we talk about that free will, way. you have the free will to do this. You have the 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 Christian faith, okay, the faith in Jesus. You have the Scripture that is teaching us to walk in newness of life, it, it, teaching us to to walk in accordance with God's will. I mean, even the whole setting of this article about free will right before it is the the final judgment on the last day, uh, judging those who are believers or unbelievers and based on works, right? And then, of course, the very next article is on good works. I mean, so it's situated in this whole place of good works. So yes, as a believer, as a believer, you begin to do these good works. And yet, all the sins that you continue to still also do are not counted against you. So the only thing that you have is the good, the good that you do. Uh, I, I mean, so you should look at it this way. You know, you, you've done something. It's going to be tainted with sin. You've done other things, but anything that's tainted with sin, the sin itself is not counted against you. It's counted against Christ. Any of the other things that you did that's made a mess, that's not counted against you. And all that's left is just the good. Look at the good that, that you've done in God's eyes because of Jesus, because of Jesus. Uh, but here on this earthly realm, I mean, we can see external things that people have done. We can also see external things that are good or bad that people have done. I mean, so you can say, yes, I made a good choice uh, with, a, with choosing a wife. Yes, good. Uh, you, you can also go through your life and say, you know, yesterday I made a poor choice, <laughs> what I just chose to do. Um, but of course, that, that's, that's forgiven. Mm-hmm. And you're always trying to do your best in accordance with God's will. I mean, you can choose to go to church on Sunday morning. Okay? You could choose to stick around for Bible class afterward. All right. And I mean, let's just be honest. Uh, not everybody who's a member of the church attends church service, the divine service, every Sunday morning. And then let's be honest, not all those who attend uh, the divine service every Sunday morning uh, stick around for Bible study afterward. Okay, I mean, but that's a choice. That's a choice that you're choosing to do. It's a choice that you're choosing because it's a good thing. It's good to go to church service, the divine service, to gather with fellow believers and to be encouraged with others who are wrestling in this life against sin and rejoicing in the forgiveness that Jesus has won for us and distributes to us in the divine service. And so it is a good thing. That's the place where we're in God's promised presence, where Christ is there for us and the Holy Spirit is at work. 
it, it's a good thing to go to Bible study. Uh, I mean, it's good because there's the, the Word of God, the means through which the Holy Spirit is working to strengthen faith. I mean, so yes, in this life, you can choose these things. You could choose to go to Bible study uh, once a day, uh, every day, go to a different Bible study, right? If you had that possibility, that choice. You could choose to open up your Bible yourself and read it by yourself. You could choose to pray. I mean, so the, these things are all good. They're all good. The, the situation that we want to be careful about, though, is that we're not trying to measure the deeds that we've done. You're not trying to keep a tallying score of, look how many times I've gone to service, a divine service. Look how many times I've gone to Bible study. Look at how many times I've prayed. Look at how many times I've opened up my Bible. And then you begin to say, and look at the few times that others have done. They, not, they, they don't quite measure up to my standards. So that temptation is always there to be like a Pharisee and to put others under judgment when you start focusing on your good works and measuring and tallying them, and then you start focusing on the lack of good works in your neighbor. So this is where the temptation is. Uh, so the, the, the focus should always be on the personal work of Jesus. And so you're thankful for what God has done. You're thankful for Christ suffering for you, Christ crucified for you, Christ raised for you, and Christ ascended as your mediator for you, that your focus is on Jesus and what he has done. So you, you want to be careful not to focus on what you've done or even focus on what others done, because once you start focusing on what you've done and others done, I mean, this is where we're going to be tempted to finding the sin. And as we look at this, there's a number of statements that are always kind of fascinating to hear, and you try to make sure you put them in proper context. For example, in America, um, <laughs> I'll do my best and God will do the rest. Now, clearly, this is something that we would just all rightly deny as Christian people when we talk about faith. It's not a matter of us doing part and then God doing the rest. This is something that is clearly what they're speaking of here. It's clearly what's done in the confessions. Luther speaks about this all the time. It is all about Christ giving us all. What's interesting to me is I had a Christian person tell me this, and I want your response, is they said, yes, in faith, we do nothing. But every day when I fulfill my vocation, I do what I can knowing that God is the one who's going to be helping me through that. And so in a sense of that, then, then this is true, that, okay, um, I can make a free will to do good things, like you said, and when I make that mistake, I trust that the Lord, is the forgiveness is mine. But as we fulfill our vocations every day, we can pray, Lord, help me to do this. Lord, help me to be more patient. Help me to do this as well. And Pastor, what would be your pastoral thoughts for this individual as they're trying to just work through how this all fits. Well, I think, again, that at the time of the Reformation, the this God issue was about uh, works righteousness. It was about uh, self-righteousness. So when the Roman Catholics start defining their theology in contrast to the Lutheran uh, confessions, right, uh, the biblical understanding of justification through faith alone, they start defining justification as initial and subsequential justification. So they'll say initial justification is like the Lutherans say through faith alone, but subsequential, which is the whole rest of your life. <laughs> so is the whole rest of your life is, is faith and love. Because mm -hmm. again, that emphasis for them was always on that love. It's the activity. It's the action that you do. It's something you do. So in that, that Roman Catholic idea in the Middle Ages, was it, yeah, I'll do my best. So you're climbing up that ladder as far as you can get. 
and then God's going to do the rest. I mean, so that's that idea. The emphasis is upon you taking the initiative, you getting up that ladder, and then letting God finish the rest. Well, that, that's a completely different understanding than you are initially beginning to walk in newness of life, okay? We're, we're starting to. We're always in a position where we're beginning every day, beginning to learn to believe in Jesus, beginning to do in accordance with God's will, but then understanding that we constantly need Jesus as our Savior who forgives our sins. So it's a, it's a different understanding of, yes, you are working, you are moving forward, you are walking, but you will stumble, you will fall, you will fail, and you constantly need the forgiveness of sins. So that's why when Luther has the morning and the evening prayer, I mean, you thank God in the morning, and then you're going to start your day uh, working in God's way. But by the end of the day, you're praying you know, uh, that, that God would forgive you all of your sins that you have done that day. I mean, so the issue is not on, I've done my best, Jesus. Okay, the focus is on measuring my works. Now, Jesus, you do the rest, but the focus is on uh, my sin and then on Jesus, my Savior. So I need forgiveness at the close of the day because I have sinned yet another day. Well, that's our time. The Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchemeyer of Wittenberg Academy confessing the truth of God's word on free will from Article 18. Oh, of the it was great to be here. Pastor Ketchemeyer, thank you for being our guest. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finnern. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the fall of this time.